Hey, White Next listeners, I have a special announcement for you. For a limited time, you can now get six months of Slate Plus for just 29 bucks. That is 50% off. As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts, including this one. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest. Slate's podcasts like this one cover major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, decode cultural mysteries. If we have become part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash whatnextplus, and you can access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, it's just 29 bucks for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com slash whatnextplus. Julia Taruso remembers exactly where she was when she heard that John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania, had suffered a stroke. I do, yes. I was driving to Pittsburgh because I was going to be with him on election night, primary election night. Julia is a political reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I I remember he had canceled a bunch of campaign events that weekend. So I thought he had COVID. I was like, oh, you know, maybe he's sick or something. Fetterman turned out to be way sicker than Julia imagined. He was hospitalized for more than a week. But he won his primary anyway. So Julia did end up at that election night party. It was strange. Yeah, it was um, his his wife delivered remarks. Um, now, you may have noticed I am not John Fetterman. <laughs> and they piped in a very short feed of him from the hospital, thanking supporters and volunteers. Thank you so much for everything. <laughs> but it was the strangest kind of election night party I've ever covered. How And I remember the press corps just kind of surrounded his wife, Giselle, trying to get any information out of her. Too many people think their best days are behind them. And nothing is more cruel than the feeling of hopelessness. That very night, she made a comment about how many people across Pennsylvania have recovered from strokes and that to suggest it's disqualifying is an an ableist thing to say. That That was the first time I kind of heard that that argument, and and that was the night he won the primary. Six months later, the Fetterman campaign is still making this argument, especially as it becomes clear what a post-stroke John Fetterman looks like. He's got trouble with auditory processing. Sometimes he'll grasp for a word he can't quite articulate. When he does interviews, he relies on real-time transcription to keep up. To be precise, I use captioning, so that's really the uh, the major... A challenge. And every now and then I'll miss a word every now and then. Uh, or sometimes I'll maybe mush two words together. But uh, Earlier this month, an interview with NBC News put Fetterman's disability in the spotlight. I, I feel like I'm going to get better and better uh, every day. For a reporter like Julia, the funny thing is that on the campaign trail, not many people are asking questions about Fetterman's stroke. I think this is an election that will come down to the economy, inflation, abortion, and the unique candidates in this race. And when I ask people about the stroke, 
I mean, Fetterman supporters are overwhelmingly not just dismissive, but defensive. And then when I talk to undecided voters, they've also been somewhat dismissive of the stroke. And even Republican voters, you know, I hear about it more, but it's a little bit less front of mind. And to the extent they talk about the stroke, it's more about transparency, I would say. All these voters will have just one chance to see how Fetterman performs in a live debate with his Republican opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz. And that debate, it's tonight. For John Fetterman, what would winning tonight's debate look like? I think winning for them is, you know, might might actually be losing, but not losing that badly. <laughs> hmm. I think it's, it's him showing that he can answer questions that are posed to him, that he can go back and forth with Oz. And, you know, Fetterman himself, he wasn't a very good debater before the stroke. He wasn't a particularly (laughs) eloquent speaker before the stroke. You know, part of his appeal has been kind of this every guy brand. If there's a lack of polish, that that was kind of there before the stroke. Today on the show, as John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz head into the final weeks of a crucial election... How much will Fetterman's disability matter? And how much should it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the questions I had watching the way voters and journalists have been talking about John Fetterman's disability especially after that NBC News interview, is how living with an auditory processing condition might actually impact Fetterman as a senator. So I called up someone who would know, Sarah Luderman. She is a reporter for The 19th, a nonprofit digital magazine. And she's got trouble with auditory processing. For her, this is because of autism. She even uses the same captioning software Fetterman does. In fact, she used it as we spoke. Yeah, I can hear I can hear what people say. I can hear the sounds that they're making, um, but it doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it gets a little bit scrambled. Um, it's worse if I'm tired. Watching the way journalists have responded to John Fetterman's stroke recovery, Sarah is struck by the way some reporters treat the accommodations the candidate needs as novel and strange. The way Sarah sees it, using closed captioning, it's just not that big of a deal. I think the goal of disability rights, at least for me, is to be a normal person. Like, I just want to exist in the world and not have it be exceptional that I've shown up to do my job. And I would like that for other people as well. And so John Fetterman showed up for his interview. He asked for what he needed in order to fully participate in his interview and in order to give the best answers he could. And instead of focusing on, on what he said, and what his policy positions were, people focused on the how of it, the fact that he needed an accommodation at all. But if he hadn't asked for the accommodation, then he probably wouldn't have been able to answer the questions as well. 
So like it's it's like this catch twenty two where like you're less competent if you need something, but you're also less competent if you ask for what you need. I'm so glad you framed it too as just wanting to be a normal person, because I feel like we ask our politicians to not be normal people. We're like, please be special and different than me. And that's a little bit what's going on here. I guess. I mean, I I feel like it's less about politicians than more just about like people existing in public. I mean, like nobody's like, oh, I don't want to look at a disabled person. Like I, I, you know, I don't want them to be around. Like nobody actively thinks that. I mean, maybe some people do, but like, you know, those people are like monsters. Like most people think of themselves as good accepting people. So like... When people say like, oh, I don't, you know, does this mean that he's less fit? They're not really thinking about like people with disabilities. They're thinking about John Fetterman. But but the thing is, like, it is about people with disabilities. It's not just about this one guy that is being thought of differently. It's that he needs something that other people with disabilities need and people with disabilities are seen as less competent. Therefore, he must be less competent. Like anybody who's disabled in public gets those questions. I've had those questions before. I feel like a lot of us have this fear that we might be too disabled to do our jobs. It's just frustrating. I don't think it's necessarily about politicians being larger than life. I think it's that Fetterman is existing in public and taking a leadership role. And that's not something that people expect to see. I think that part of what made John Fetterman's stroke almost more disabling was that part of his success as a politician is based on like what Rebecca Traister has called his indestructible guyness. Like he's a big dude, he's got tattoos. And so infirmity just really shifts his image a lot. And so the voters are showing up for one guy and now he's different. And that doesn't mean that he's better or worse. It just means adjusting. I wonder if I wonder if that's how you see it too or whether you see it differently. Disability is something that happens to everyone if you live long enough. Like it doesn't matter how butch you are. Like if you if you're going to have a stroke, like it's going to happen. It's not like it's not like a health problem is like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were a dude's dude," you know? Like I mean, like <laughs> strokes like I'll I, go I, on I, to the next guy. You like <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that guy that guy looks like a beta. I'm going to go give that guy a stroke instead. Like I mean, it's like <laughs> It's so true, but it's like not how we think about it, you know? Like I think about how Donald Trump, when he got COVID, he hatched this plan to come out of the hospital and rip off his shirt and have a Superman shirt inside, which sounds kooky, but it's all wrapped up in this idea of how politicians see themselves and what we see as a leader and what that looks like, you know? I do also think, though, that it really highlights sort of this underlying ableist narrative that we have in our society about fitness and who should run for office. I feel like, especially during the the Biden-Trump campaign, it felt like sometimes they were treating it like the presidency is decided by who can do the most push-ups. <laughs> Joe Biden is pushing President Trump's buttons with the push-up challenge. Say, come on, Donald. Come on, man. How many push-ups you want to do here, pal, you know? Right. I mean, jokingly. Isn't there that fact that whoever's taller usually wins? Yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's whoever can do, whoever can run a mile the fastest gets to be president. That's how that works. Like, it's, it's just like, a, it's just an absurd way to approach politics. Fetterman spent so much of the summer in recovery. 
But then when he started to make public appearances, I feel like that's when it began to be clear that he was impaired by his stroke and he was going to look different than he had back in the spring, which basically Dr. Oz, his opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, used it as a kind of wedge. Oz's campaign releasing a statement Tuesday that said, if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a major stroke. But I was surprised by the fact that mainstream media also went in with it as a wedge. Like the Washington Post wrote in an editorial that there were lingering unanswered questions about Fetterman's health. I wonder if the broadness of the critique of Fetterman surprised you at all. No, it wasn't surprising at all. It's a narrative that you see come out anytime anybody in any kind of leadership position is you know, you don't even actually have to be ill. I mean, like if you think about like President Biden falling off a bike or uh, how President Trump holds a glass of water or walks down a ramp, like any any perceived infirmity is seized upon. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up that video of Donald Trump walking down a ramp. This is a video from 2020, I think, and he was at West Point and he sort of stumbles a little bit, seems to, you know, need to move a little slowly on a ramp. And it became a moment where the same way Republicans now are sort of seizing on John Fetterman's verbal stumbles, it made a couple laps around Twitter. And people were saying, oh, what does this mean about the health of the president? Back then, did that piss you off too? Yes. I felt like he's not going to see any of that stuff, you know, like the people who are going to see it are the people with disabilities in your lives who might stumble on a ramp and saying, oh, well, you're unfit to lead because of how you walk like that. That's just wild to me. Like, it's very frustrating. It's not a it's not a policy critique. It's not a critique of how he handled covid. It's it's a critique of, of a perceived physical fault. Yeah. Here's a question for you. Eventually, John Fetterman did make a little more medical information available. He released another letter from another doctor that said that he was fit for office. But I wonder if you think he should have had to have done that at all. Like, how much medical information do you think voters have a right to? So this is actually probably one of my most controversial opinions. So I guess alert, hot take. Um, (laughs) Buckle up. Yeah, um, I actually don't think that politicians should be obligated to share that information. Why? Because I don't think that, I don't think that people know how to handle it. I don't think it's a good indicator of whether someone is competent. I mean, I think FDR is probably the example everybody goes to. He went through lengths to conceal that he had a disability when he was in office. But he's also, you know, one of the most influential presidents the U.S. has ever had. I just don't think that it's information that people understand. And I I don't think it's useful information most of the time. I guess I think about it differently, which is I think you're right that it's information that people don't understand. But I think there's a lot of information that people don't understand. Like, I think that people's tax returns people don't understand. And yet many journalists have seized on that as like, we need to see candidates' tax returns to understand who they are financially and how they approach things. So it's one of those things where it's gestural more than anything. It's saying, I will be open. It's more of like a meta message than the specific details. 
I don't know if it's like tax tax returns though, because tax returns are sort of about like they're about a person's behavior, whereas like your health is a fact of your body. Oh, like you made choices on that tax return versus your body. You just exist in this meat sack. Yeah. It sounds like you're also saying it's a little bit of an invitation for a candidate to lie. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true, too. Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, it definitely encourages candidates to sort of show off how many push-ups they can do. <laughs> when we come back, America's long history of ableism. When John Fetterman faces questions about how fit he is for office, he's got a practiced response. He says having a disability has made him more empathetic. You know, before the the stroke, I thought I was a very empathetic person. And I really understood what it was like, you know, with people dealing with these kind of challenges. But after it happened, it made me even more 10 times more empathetic and understanding that, Drew. Sarah Luderman says statements like this one are actually pretty typical of candidates who seem disabled. Sometimes the candidates are being genuine. Sometimes it's just a line. But she says it's essential for the candidates to say something to this effect, simply because they're going up against a long history of ableism in American culture. I think it's important to note that the United States was basically the center of the eugenics movement around the turn of the century. Um, Eugenics is sort of this idea that some people are more... uh, genetically fit than others, more competent, more, you know, stronger, smarter, and that you could sort of uh, create a better person, like you could create a better kind of dog, like 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 that you could sort of breed a better person. And, and this concept had a huge policy impact in the United States. I mean, it led to large-scale institutionalization of people with disabilities. It led to laws that removed disabled people from public life and hid us from view. And it led to some pretty monstrous human rights violations, like forced sterilization. And I think it's important to note that it's this is fairly recent history. There are still people alive who were sterilized. Yeah, absolutely. I actually did a podcast with Radiolab a couple years ago called Unfit that actually interviewed some of the survivors of the eugenics movement, like some of the people who had been forcibly sterilized. Two nurses came and said they were going to give her a checkup, and they gave her a mask, which she thinks was ether, and she felt the world slipping away, and she was like... In some cases, forced sterilizations were taking place all the way through the 1970s. So these ideas, like, are really baked into our culture. I was surprised, too, that there are structural barriers to people with disability running for office, kind of taking leadership roles. Like, candidates could lose their Social Security disability benefits if they run. Yeah, basically. If you need home care, if you need someone to come and help you use the restroom or eat or go grocery shopping, in order to qualify for that service in the United States, unless you're fabulously wealthy and can just pay for it out of pocket, you need to rely on Medicaid. And in most states, in order to qualify for Medicaid, you need to have an income and and savings that are astonishingly low. You can't save more than $2,000 in your bank account or you will lose your benefits. So this is something that's called the disability poverty trap. 
if you're disabled, you almost need to be impoverished in order to get the care you need. Yeah, basically. And so there there are folks in the U.S. that I, I think have wanted to run for office, but they can't because if they do, I mean, the campaign donations might count as assets. They might lose their benefits. Like, it's very easy to get kicked off the rolls. So the fact that we don't really see people with disabilities in leadership positions, it, it's partially structural. There's also issues like school. You know, we have we have laws like Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So there's laws that say that, you know, children need to have equal access to education, but they're not necessarily always applied and they're not always applied equitably. So people have, you know, fewer opportunities. And so that means that they're going to be less present in the workplace, in leadership positions, and all kinds of other things. Here's something I struggle with, and I wonder if you can talk me through it a little bit. I think it's important to ask questions about whether our political leaders are fit for office in all kinds of ways. Like at the same time we're having this conversation about John Fetterman, another U.S. senator, Dianne Feinstein, she's getting a lot of critical press because she's remained in office, even though she's quite old and some people say she's struggling with her memory. Do you think asking questions about a leader's cognitive fitness is always unfair? Like, is there a way to ask those questions that isn't unfair? Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring up Feinstein because I wrote an article about that earlier this year. Specifically, I, I wrote about, I think, like, a question a lot of people don't ask about Feinstein is, like, why not retire, right? Like, why why would she want to stay in office? And, and it actually turned out the answer was sort of interesting. For a lot of women in particular um, in, in politics, there's sort of this whole generation of women that, like, didn't get into politics until after all of their children were no longer living in the house. So their political careers started later. And yeah, I don't know. So that took them longer to achieve what it took maybe some of their male counterparts to achieve. So to have a full career, they want to stick around longer? Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, obviously, like, I wasn't able to talk to Feinstein for for the piece, but I thought it was something I really hadn't thought about before. (sighs) I mean, yeah, Feinstein's probably one of the more obvious examples of, like, where this gets a lot more complicated. I will say that there are several senators historically who, during their time in office, were not necessarily, I guess, completely with it. And I, and I guess, like, in that situation, like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's complicated. Yeah, because the staff can execute a lot of work, but then no one voted for the staff. Yeah. John Fetterman and Dr. Oz, they're supposed to have a single debate, partially because of Fetterman's auditory processing challenges. It's going to be this week. For folks watching, how do you think they should analyze it? Because when I watched that NBC interview, it was hard not to be distracted by the fact that Fetterman needed to look away. You know, we're so used to our politicians looking us right in the eye and saying whatever they're going to say. And that's just not even possible if you're getting something transcribed because you have to look at it. It's funny you say that because part of my disability is that I, I have like it's one of the most probably one of the most commonly known aspects of autism is I have trouble looking people in the eye. <laughs> I just wish people would focus more on on the content. But, you know, it's hard to ask people to change how they how they perceive things. That's that's it's actually the title of a 
John Elder Robeson wrote a book called Look Me in the Eye because of this specific thing. Because people crave it so much. Yeah, I I guess. I don't I don't crave it. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the problem, I guess. Yeah. I keep thinking back to the Nixon JFK debate in nineteen sixty, where people talk about how Nixon was sweaty and didn't wear makeup. And it upset people. And I was like, that's not that's not even a disability. That's just like existing under a hot light. That's also a whole conversation is like whether the NBC interview should have been edited to take out the pauses, for example, to like so that viewers wouldn't be noticing it as much, like whether that's something that should have been done. Well, it's interesting. I have so many questions about how much it was edited because it's hard to tell because there were so many cameras going. There were pauses. Were they longer? Were they shorter? I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's also like I used to um, I, I used to have a tick and I, I when I, I've done radio for like a long time at this point and the tick went away when I switched medications. But like I used to ask people to edit it out. And like, I don't know, in retrospect, like, I don't know if that was actually a good idea. Like I, I was earlier career and I was embarrassed and I, I don't know. I think it's the same kind of thing. Like, it's people get distracted by the delivery, and I just wish they'd focus more on the content. Yeah. If you could ask these candidates a question at this debate that you think would illuminate the stakes for folks in the disabled community, I'm wondering what you would ask of them. I mean, I think the number one issue, at least based on what I cover, is probably the home health aid shortage. Right now, there you know there are Americans as they age and as they acquire disabilities generally prefer to stay at home in their own homes. And in a lot of places, it's just not possible because we don't have enough people to do the work. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Basically, like the payments are determined by the federal government and they're capped. So if someone's making $13 an hour doing incredibly difficult work, you know, helping someone use the bathroom or they can make 15 20 an hour working at a Walmart you know like which which one would you do structurally we've created this like perfect storm where there are people who need support and they're not getting it and people don't want to do the work because it pays badly and that's something that you're not going to hear about in most mainstream news because it's not like a hot culture war issue. It's something that I write about frequently. And honestly, it gets way fewer clicks than most anything else I write. <laughs> but that, that would be like the number one thing I would want to ask candidates. You know, what I like about that question is that we talked about John Fetterman embracing <laughs> what you say is pretty typical for disabled candidates, basically saying, I'm really empathetic towards other people now. And what that question does is push on that empathy and say, that's so great that you're empathetic. What can you do with that empathy once you get this higher office, if you do? That's a good question. Sarah Luderman, I always love picking your brain. I'm really, really grateful to you for making this interview happen. Thanks for having me on. Sarah Luderman covers caregiving for the 19th News. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, Madeline Ducharme, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. 
Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.